end, the shape of your life comes down to two questions. What do you want? And what are you willing to sacrifice for it? Weak ambition will temper the impact of dark desires, while wholehearted devotion to bright purposes leaves the world enriched. But a person who wants evil and will give anything to get it, theirs will be a bleak tale indeed. This is a story about out-of-control desire and its common bedfellow, self-delusion. It's a story about truth in all of its magnetic, repulsive glory. And it's a story about a God who assures us anything we want more than Him is destined to become a curse. I'm Justin Gerhardt. Welcome to Holy Ghost Stories. A crimson creek traces its way across the soil, running out from a man's cratered head. The liquid draws a line in the sand. Stones lie scattered around the body, each about the size of a fist, some the exact size of the depressions on the motionless skull beside them. A terrible way to meet your end being stoned to death. Worse when you're guiltless, framed by a powerful person who wants what you have. The river of fresh blood runs red, but as gravity coaxes it onward, a tongue interrupts the flow, paints itself scarlet, retreats into a hungry mouth, returns. The tongue belongs to a dog. The dog belongs to a pack. The pack consumes the blood of Naboth. Ahab's teeth clench, his lip curled into a snarl as he watches Elijah approach, interrupting his vineyard tour. So you have found me, my enemy. The words reek of loathing. The last time they met on the heights of Mount Carmel, Elijah humiliated him and killed scores of his prophets. And for what? Yahweh's bragging rights? Some axe to grind against religious progress? And now, after a precious five years reprieve, here Elijah comes again with that look in his eye, scolding on the tip of his tongue. It's like his entire mission is to disparage and discredit Ahab. Elijah should be supporting his king, not buzzing around like some blood-sucking mosquito. Ahab should give the order right now and have Elijah... I have found you, Elijah answers, because you have sold yourself to do evil in the eyes of Yahweh. This is what Yahweh says. In spite of himself, Ahab finds it hard to look directly into the prophet's shining eyes. You have murdered a man and seized his property. 
King Ahab looks around. What? Naboth? The dead man's grapevines surround Ahab silently, accusing the king. Oh, please. Naboth was a nobody, and his property was right next to the palace. He was offered a price. Obviously, it was the king's prerogative to requisition the vineyard, and when he wouldn't cooperate, Naboth was a casualty of progress. Besides, Ahab thinks, perhaps, it was Jezebel's idea. The king's wife is good at things like this. She has a creative mind. This is what Yahweh says, Elijah continues. I am going to bring disaster on you. In the place where dogs licked up Naboth's blood, dogs will lick up your blood. At this, something changes in Ahab. They've been enemies for some time, but Elijah has never prophesied against Ahab's life. The king shivers at the image of a grisly, unceremonious end, consumed by animals. And as Elijah keeps speaking, keeps delivering Yahweh's message of impending, justified doom, Ahab feels something, something powerful, painful, strange, remorse. These words sneaking past his defenses, squeezing through chinks in the armor of his heart, piercing soul and spirit. It's as if they're alive. Emotion erupts from within. He cannot hold it back any longer. What is happening? Ahab reaches for the neck of his tunic, grabs hold of the fabric, and tears his clothing in rueful contrition. His attendants surely stand wide-eyed at the sight of this repentance. Within hours, the recalcitrant king of Israel is dressed in sackcloth, behaving meekly. Everyone notices, especially Yahweh. It is a spectacular transformation. But will this posture last? Three years. Israel and her neighbor Aram have enjoyed peace for three years, thanks in part to Ahab's new amended bearing. Deferent, humble, quiet. Yahweh delayed Ahab's punishment because the king has changed. He's not begun seeking after God, per se, but he's not the antagonist he's always been. And it's driving Jezebel crazy. Perhaps she's the one who puts the idea into Ahab's head, a tiny germ of a notion, that longtime mistress of Ahab's desire. Over a period of months, years perhaps, the thought wriggles and stretches, incubated by the warmth of Jezebel's ambition, warmed beside the embers of Ahab's latent selfishness. Ramoth Gilead. Ramoth Gilead is a city that lies on the northern bank of the Jabbok River, east of the Jordan. A base of Israelite operations and governance generations ago under Solomon, it was lost to Aram during the war. 
It's a fine city, but not extraordinary by most measures. It holds no unique strategic value, no peerless natural resources. No, the thing about Ramoth Gilead is that in the post-war treaty, Ben-Hadad, the king of Aram, promised to give it back to Ahab. He hasn't. And Ahab can't get that out of his mind. The city sits there, night and day, controlled by his enemy. A stolen trophy, evidence of Ben-Hadad's enmity, a promise Aram refused to keep. And what has Ahab done about it? Nothing. They're probably laughing at him right now. The flame of desire swells, burns. He must take it, turn their laughter into tears. But Aram is mighty. Ahab will need help settling this score. Call Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. Tell him I want to meet with him. Surely Ahab's counselors balk at the command. But your majesty, the kingdom is divided. We in the north broke from the south generations ago. They are as much our enemy as... But Ahab does not need a history lesson. And this is not a request. Call for him. So, will you go with me to fight against Ramoth Gilead? Ahab looks expectantly at Jehoshaphat, leveraging the heft of his 83 years to Jehoshaphat's 53. Ahab lets the question hang in the air. Every good salesman knows, once you've made your best case, make the ask. Once you've made the ask, shut your mouth. Jehoshaphat considers... To tell the truth, he was complimented by the invitation to journey north to Samaria. Ahab is not one to show deference, and yet, in the kingdom, the old kingdom of David and Solomon, where twelve tribes walked side by side, marrying, trading, standing united against their enemies, there was once a dream that was Israel. Perhaps this could be the beginning of that old dream beginning again. Of course, Ahab's idolatry, his rampant evil, and his infamous queen, the high priestess of Midian's Asherah cult, it all makes any true alliance seem less than feasible. But who knows? Word is, these last years have seen a, a different Ahab emerge. And so, perhaps... I am as you are, Jehoshaphat finally answers. My people are as your people. My horses are as your horses. If Ahab smiles in satisfied celebration, his grin flickers ever so slightly when Jehoshaphat adds, First, seek the counsel of Yahweh. <laughs> of course. The din of enthusiastic conversation electrifies the main hall of the palace. Energy reverberates from this epicenter across the rolling hills of Samaria. Everything seems green, alive with activity, potential. Four hundred men nod and ruminate, laugh and confer, chatter and catch up. But when they are called to order by King Ahab, his four hundred court prophets fall silent assuming a studied, dignified air of formality. So, 
Shall I go to war against Remoth Gilead, or shall I refrain? King Ahab lets the question hang in the air. The lines on his aged face sketch his visage in the dramatic strokes of a woodcut. He is a man who knows what he wants. King Jehoshaphat sits beside Ahab, waiting for the twenty-score spokesmen to verbalize the will of the divine. He studies the group as they prepare to respond to their king. One prophet steps forward, a representative. Go, he says. The prophets behind him nod in assent. Go, for Yahweh will give Ramoth Gilead into the king's hand. Jehoshaphat brightens, so they do know Yahweh. That's good. The rumors about Ahab's court would lead you to believe that he and Jezebel killed off all of the prophets of Yahweh. You know gossip, though. Clearly it was all overstated, but something's off. It's like these men speak about Yahweh rather than for him. Do they know him, or do they just know about him? that he looks closely, Jehoshaphat notices, perhaps, details in their dress. Talismans dangling from their necks, tattoos snaking up their sleeves that betray certain allegiances, dark allegiances. A weight presses into the bottom of Jehoshaphat's stomach. Is there no longer a prophet of Yahweh here whom we can inquire of? He ventures. But as he glances over to Ahab mid-question, he sees the king of Israel's face fall, shifting from pleasure to... What is that? Annoyance? There is still one prophet through whom we can inquire of Yahweh. Jehoshaphat waits. It seems as though there's more. Micaiah, son of Imlah. But he never prophesies anything good about me. It's always bad. I hate him. Jehoshaphat's eyebrows travel north at that last line, then press down as he says involuntarily, The king should not say such a thing. Ahab's reaction to this scolding is... What? Aggravation? Amusement? It must be unusual to have someone speak to him like this. Perhaps it feels novel. Whatever Ahab feels at Jehoshaphat's intervention, the Judean king breathes a sigh of relief, surely, when Ahab waves over one of his officials and issues a terse command. Bring Micaiah, son of Imlah, at once. What is this? King Ahab looks on from his temporary throne in the city square located beside Samaria's main gates. He elbows Jehoshaphat, perhaps, and gestures enthusiastically to the crowd of prophets. Something is about to happen. Ahab looks quite pleased, while Jehoshaphat looks somewhat uncomfortable. It's an outdoor gathering, a garnering of public support, perhaps, for the upcoming campaign, organized by Ahab and featuring his royal seers. A chance for as many people as possible to hear from these men, while the king waits for that man, Micaiah, the naysayer. 
For the past while, the sea of 400 prophets has been teeming with activity, roiling with chants, heaven-raised hands, and shouted forecasts of victory. But now the sea calms and parts, allowing one man through. It's not Micaiah. Zedekiah, son of Kinana, moves forward toward the two kings. The crowd of prophets falls silent as he approaches. Onlookers crane their necks in renewed interest, intrigued by the sudden quiet. This is what Yahweh says, the prophet shouts. Then Zedekiah pulls from behind his back a pair of horns, life-sized bovine horns made out of iron. He strains under the weight, lifting them to his head, fastening them perhaps with a leather harness that buckles beneath his chin. He's made the prop himself, and he's clearly proud of it. King Ahab, presumably, shares this enthusiasm. He's on the edge of his seat as Zedekiah continues, With these, he gestures to the horns so there's no confusion, You will gore the Arameans until they are destroyed. Cheers. A roar of concurring prophecies. Yes! Attack Ramoth Gilead and be victorious! The others shout. For Yahweh will give it into the king's hand. Zedekiah swings his head around in pantomime of a charging bull, impaling invisible adversaries. More cheers, more shouted projections of glory. Ahab is, at this point, surely on his feet, arms outstretched, receiving the confident assurances of these channels of the divine. He elbows Jehoshaphat again. <laughs> See? Micaiah's lips thin. He draws a slow, heavy breath as the king's messenger briefs him in the moments before they ride to the capital. Look, the other prophets, without exception, are predicting success for the king. The brief then transitions to counsel, or is it command? Let your word agree with theirs, and speak favorably. Ah, so you've discussed me. Micaiah lets the breath escape in a long sigh. As surely as Yahweh lives, I can tell the king only what Yahweh tells me. Ah, Micaiah. Ahab smiles, a forced obligation of the smile. So, shall we go to war against Ramoth Gilead, or not? Now it's Jehoshaphat who's on the edge of his seat. The 400 court prophets surround Micaiah, leering at him, daring him to oppose their divinely inspired attack and be victorious. If Ahab has feigned disinterest, scratching at the head of his scepter with his thumbnail, his eyes snap back toward Micaiah, for Yahweh will give the city into the king's hand. Perhaps Jehoshaphat elbows Ahab, gestures enthusiastically in the prophet's direction. Well, but Ahab is not smiling. How many times, he says, rising from his throne, must I make you swear to tell me nothing but the truth in the name of Yahweh? Assurances from an enemy feel like a trap. Micaiah raises his hands. I saw Israel scattered on the hills like sheep without a shepherd. And Yahweh said, 
these people have no master. Let each one go home in peace. Aha! I am their shepherd. If they were scattered, what could that mean but that I was gone? And they were to go home in peace? What, now that I was... See? Ahab elbows Jehoshaphat. Didn't I tell you that he never prophesies anything good about me? Hear the word of Yahweh. Oh, he's not done. Excellent. Ahab sits, perhaps, and returns his attention to the head of his scepter. Micaiah looks intently upon the two thrones and their occupants. I saw Yahweh sitting on his throne with all the multitudes of heaven standing around him on his right hand and on his left. Jehoshaphat leans forward. And Yahweh said, Who will entice Ahab into attacking Ramoth-Gilead and going to his death there? At this, Ahab cannot help but turn his attention toward the prophet. One suggested this, another that. Finally, an angel came forward, stood before Yahweh, and said, I will entice him. Ahab leans forward. By what means? Yahweh asked. I will go out and be a deceiving spirit in the mouths of all of his prophets, he said. And then Yahweh replied, You will succeed in enticing him. Go and do it. So now... Micaiah continues with a flourish, waving his hand toward the men surrounding him. Yahweh has put a deceiving spirit in the mouths of all these prophets of yours. And before the 400 can shout their outraged dissent, Micaiah concludes simply, Yahweh has decreed disaster for you. Jehoshaphat's jaw is on the floor. He does not elbow Ahab. Then, amidst the shocked silence, motion. Zedekiah, son of Kinana, pushes through to Micaiah and slaps him on the face. Is he still wearing the horns? He's probably still wearing the horns. Which way did the angel of Yahweh go when he went from me to speak to you? He demands sarcastically. You'll know soon enough, Micaiah fires back. You'll find out on the day you're frantically trying to hide yourself from him. Zedekiah lunges, perhaps, but Ahab has had enough. Take Micaiah and put him in prison. Give him nothing but bread and water until I return safely. When the guard grabs his arms, Micaiah shouts to the king, If you ever return safely, Yahweh has not spoken through me. He turns to the crowd and cries, Mark my words, you people. Outside of Ramoth-Gilead, across from the army of Aram, the combined forces of Israel and Judah ready themselves for battle. Sandals laced, arrows fletched, sword blades honed. Hearts beat, prayers rise, heads nod. And while the warriors make ready, their kings confer. Ahab presents Jehoshaphat with an unorthodox proposal. An attendant assists as Ahab fastens the buckles of a common soldier's armor. I will enter the battle in disguise, Ahab says nonchalantly, pretending not to notice the look of confusion on Jehoshaphat's face. He lifts an infantryman's sword up and down, perhaps testing the weight of it in his palm. But you wear your royal robes. 
Jehoshaphat balks surely at this plan. Why would... Ahab must have taken Micaiah's words to heart. He's afraid of being targeted. But he expects me to ride into battle wrapped in a purple robe? If the king of Judah objects, Ahab reminds him, the prophecy had nothing to do with you. In fact, if anything does happen, you will want the protections afforded to a king. Ahab watches Jehoshaphat think, then nod. So satisfying, that moment where his wiles and charm convince someone to do something. There have been so many of those moments over the years. Meanwhile, in the Aramean camp, King Ben-Hadad gives an order to his 32 chariot commanders. Do not fight with anyone, small or great, except Ahab, king of Israel. They nod soberly. Trumpets sound. Warriors scream. Horses thunder. Blades carve. The men of Israel and Judah fight to take back Ahab's prize. And the Aramean charioteers, they artfully dodge conflict after conflict, racing their war machines through the fray, eyes peeled for a flash of purple blanketing the aged king of Israel. At first, nothing, but then, there he is! In a flash, they're upon him, ripping the king to the ground and raising their swords to... But this is no 83-year-old. Where is Ahab? If the words escape their lips, they do so as a rhetorical question. Finding a disguised king in the chaos of battle, there's as little hope of that as there would be of hitting a bullseye at random. But then, that's exactly what happens. One of the Aramean archers, or is it an Israelite, finds himself overwhelmed, desperate, taking happenstance shots, aiming only at the sky. He draws his bow, points the arrow at the stratosphere, murmurs a prayer, perhaps, mouth to fletching, his whispers rearranging the feather's vein. Then he lets fly. The arrow sails skyward, up, 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 until the heavens grab hold of it and cast it back toward the earth. It sails down, 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 and stops in the flesh of a man. The arrow found its way through a seam in his armor. A seam that's a bit too large, as though the outfit was incorrectly sized, or not even made for him at all. King Ahab yelps in pain. No, it can't be. Wheel around, he snarls at his chariot driver. Get me out of the fighting. I've been wounded. As the chariot rattles toward the edge of the battlefield, Ahab reaches a hand toward the wound. Good, he thinks perhaps it's bleeding slowly. All day long, the battle rages. And Ahab, greedy for his prize, remains propped in his chariot, insistent upon watching the fight gazing upon the object of his desire. Eventually, though, a strange thing happens. The king's eyelids grow heavy. Why would he be sleepy? 
long-awaited battle for Ramoth Gilead should be more than enough to... But the urge to sleep is so strong. Just a little shut-eye. After this, perhaps I will burn the city and its people. Teach Ben-Hadad a lesson. These are the kind of thoughts that keep a man like this company. Every man to his town, every man to his land. The cries of Judeans and Israelites echo off the walls of Ramoth Gilead, the city they could not take. And standing witness to this scattering of sheep without a shepherd, the chariot of Ahab. The floor is wet. His armor is streaked obscuring the reflection of the setting sun's light. The king's head sags on his neck, his jaw slack, the furrows in his skin sketching in dramatic strokes the portrait of Ahab's death. Yahweh sighs. The Israelites bring their king's body back to Samaria. They bury him there. And the chariot, well, chariots are highly valuable. It must be kept and reused. But first it must be cleaned. A few men bring it to a pool in the city, fill vessels of water, pour them over the walls, the axle, that floor. As the water coaxes the stains from the wood and the leather, a crimson creek traces its way across the soil. The liquid draws a line in the sand. The river of blood runs red, the color of wine, the color of Naboth's grapes. But as gravity coaxes it onward, a tongue interrupts the flow, paints itself scarlet, retreats into a hungry mouth, returns. The tongue belongs to a dog. The dog belongs to a pack. The pack consumes the blood of Ahab, just as Yahweh's word declared. Self-deception is such a strange thing. Why would a person, a powerful, intelligent person like Ahab, knowingly believe a lie? Multiple lies. I am invincible. Everything will be better when I get the power or the possessions or the person I desire. Nothing I want costs too much. What is the allure of obvious falsehoods like these? The answer may express itself in complex ways, but there is really just one reason for self-delusion. The truth is undesirable. Or perhaps better, the truth is terrifying. Ahab was scared of so much 
of dying, of looking like a fool, of not getting what he wanted. What a sad, inevitable irony when he died a fool's death, watching his army lose the battle for the object of his lust. And what of Yahweh? In the midst of all this rampant desire, what does Yahweh want as he looks at his powerful, frightened son? He wants Ahab to want him. He wants Israel awake and alive. He wants the people of Aram to let go of their lifeless gods and walk with him alongside Judah. He wants his children, kings and peasants, queens and prophets. He wants them to know that he can be trusted, that his rules are not punishments, that his predictions are not lies, that his way does not disallow happiness but is in fact the only path to joy. These are the things Yahweh wants. And what is he willing to sacrifice toward that end? Everything. Years from now, a crimson creek will trace its way across a king's forehead. His death will draw a line in the sand. And in the years that follow, his subjects will gather at tables and pour wine the color of Naboth's grapes, the color of their risen king's blood. As they drink, their tongues will be stained red, just as their souls are washed clean. They will know the truth, and the truth will set them free. everybody. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you were blessed by The Voice, The Naysayer, and The Doomed. And hey, welcome back to Season 3. I'm so glad to be back in the swing of things. I have missed sharing episodes with you. But the last several weeks has been very productive. I've been hard at work on Season 4, researching on the ground in Egypt, writing that season, and working with the incredible Kendall Ramsour as he creates the musical score for those episodes. You are going to love hearing the story of the Exodus this way, and I cannot wait to share it with you when it's time. However, season four is not the only thing that I've been working on recently. I am thrilled to let you know, are you sitting down, that the first Holy Ghost Stories live show is happening this fall. This will not be a live recording of the podcast, but rather an in-person experience 
of Holy Ghost Stories. We will gather in a beautiful space. I will share two incredible stories with live cello accompaniment, and there will be other delightful surprises for you that I cannot divulge quite yet. A lot of planning and collaboration has gone into this already, and I'm telling you, this night will be magic. My goal is to give you an encounter with Yahweh you will never forget. That's what I'm praying this will be. I think that's exactly what you can expect. I'll have much more to share with you in the coming weeks, but this is your official Save the Date. It'll happen at 7 p.m. on Sunday, October 30th at First Methodist Church in Midland, Texas. And thanks to the incredibly generous folks at First Methodist Midland, the cost is free. But tickets are required because space is very limited. You will be able to register for tickets starting on August 1st. And the best way to find out where to get those tickets is to subscribe to the latest. It's an email I send out every couple of weeks. So many of you are on that list and I'm glad you are. If you're not, go to holyghoststories.org or just click the link in the show notes to sign up. It's super fast, easy, and free. Anyway, the show, October 30th, the night before Halloween, Holy Ghost stories live put it on the calendar fly drive take a bus to midland get there if you can because this night will be incredibly special and i would love to meet you in person and finally if you're wondering how holy ghost stories gets made it's because of the incredible patrons who support this show on patreon so let me shout out to the raconteurs tiffany jack rebecca sarah beth ginger luke derek debbie aaron stephanie vicenta cheyenne boo helen elizabeth susan rick maddie april eric and jody john ricky brandy kimmy steve patrick liz stevens terry jack nelwyn julie jamie steven trina jessica ken Alyssa sloan and jamie you guys make me as happy as zedekiah's homemade horns made king ahab till next time